You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. In Israel, the center of justice was not the palace, uh, but the temple. And I want to show you a picture from the temple, from ancient Israel. This is an actual floor stone tile from the temple in Jerusalem. You can go today and walk on this tile. And if you look carefully, uh, you may see a design on it. Etched in its surface is a board game that the Romans used to play. On the corner of the temple, the Romans built a fortress called the Antonio Fortress. From there, they could, um, high above the temple, they could monitor uh, the Jews. Um, so this picture represents injustice. In the first place, because it's a, it's a picture of where the Roman soldiers underneath the Antonio Fortress used to oppress the Jews. But this board game was a board game that was played at the expense of prisoners. We don't know the rules, but we know that uh, the soldiers would take one prisoner, dress them up as a king, and mock them. It was called uh, the Game of the King. Now, I show you this picture because our text comes from the life of the temple uh, this morning. It was written or it's attributed to a man named Asaph, who was one of David's three choir directors. Asaph, in this psalm, takes us to the heart of justice. Questions like, why do we do it? Or why don't we do it? Modern people have our own answers to these questions. Conservatives on the right tend to emphasize freedom and personal responsibilities. Progressives on the left tend to emphasize privilege and structural issues. The Bible knows about the whole spectrum there. But the Bible more frequently speaks about the spiritual issues, uh, the heart. And Asaph is writing a, a psalm that is very much about the heart before it's God. So I'd invite you please to open up to Psalm 73. Let's have a look. Please grab the black book in front of you if you didn't bring your own Bible. Turn to page 465. I invite you to keep the text open. I'm going to claim the privilege of reading this passage for us again. would invite you just to listen. And I'd like you to listen for the word heart six times. Uh, it comes up. And notice this as you turn there. Stop first at Psalm 72. Uh, most scholars think that 72 and 73 are paired because of their location in the Psalter. Psalter has five books, which are collections of Psalms. And oftentimes at the transition point, you have doubles, like Psalm 42 and 43 at the beginning of book two. Here at the beginning of book three, we think that 72 and 73 have been associated together because they both deal with justice. Notice Psalm 72, 1 where we read, the, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. Um, that little couplet contains both of the Hebrew words for justice that we talked about last week. It's a prayer for justice in the world. But now this psalmist Asaph gives us um, an exploration of justice in the human heart. Listen closely as I read Psalm 73. When I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen closely, you're hearing God's holy word. Truly God is good to the upright, 
or to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not plagued like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. And their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Such are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued and am punished every morning. If I'd said I will talk on this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awakening, you despise their phantoms or shadows. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just heard never will. As I've been thinking about this sermon series on justice, I've been thinking, what is it about the biblical call to justice that's distinct from our culture's call to justice? I mean, I'm glad we live in a, in a time and a place where people value justice. At least we say that we do. We aspire to justice. But what's different about the biblical approach? And I've come to see that, in a word, it's love. Biblical justice is rooted in love, love for God among, above, above all else. And finally, God's love for us, God's love for all of creation. So I want to explore this theme a little bit with you today. And I want to talk to you about envious love and grateful love, and then finally, gospel love. Uh, first, envious love. 
I think this psalmist is trying to teach us that envy is the wounding heart of injustice. Envy. Remember last week, we defined justice as, uh, by this, this, this definition, mercy is the healing heart of justice. Mercy. But here we see the destructive power of envy. It's the flip side. Notice in verse 3 how he begins. Here's the problem in the text. I was envious. I was envious. How does this happen? Well, comparison. He's looking around all the other people, and he's comparing himself to them, his fortune to theirs. I've told you we have a tendency to compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths, and it seems that it's happening here. There's a very contemporary description of people that we would call fortunate people or successful people today. Look at how he describes those who are doing well in society around him. They are, in verse 4, uh, people who have no pain in their life. They appear to have no pain. They have, they're beautiful people, sleek bodies. They're very healthy, sound bodies, verse 4. They have abundant opportunity. Verse 5, they're wealthy, verses 7 and 12. They eat good food. They're, they're foodies. They have fat in their eyes. It's a sign of prestige to be heavy in the, uh, in the ancient world um, because, of, because it means you have a lot of food. And uh, it, they're, they're people of influence. They're well-connected, verse 10. They, they live at ease, verse 12. This is what I see in all the people around me. By the way, in the wicked people, which means literally the guilty ones, this is a theological problem for. How is it that you seem to be blessing those who don't even care about you, God? And then I look at myself, uh, verse 14. All day long I've been plagued. That word means literally beaten down. All day long when I put my head on the pillow, I feel beaten down. When I get up in the morning, it feels like I'm being punished, and I'm punished every morning, he says. That's a comparison. That's what envy does. It creates an unfavorable comparison between ourselves and others. Let me tell you what it looks like in my life. Last Monday was a holiday, and I woke up happy. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., I had the day off, and we had had a great day of worship the day before, such a joyful uh, service, 1145, great congregational meeting. The Williamses were here, just so happy I got up. Well, that emotion didn't last for me. It wasn't sustainable through the day, because here's what happened. Um, we, my family went, rode our bikes. We took our books to the Ballard Locks, which we do often when it's sunny. We like just to read on the grass there. And, and what went wrong was the boats, not, not just any of the boats. There was one that was labeled NC-14 on it. It was a Junot NC-14, a beautiful cruising boat. And we're like, wow. And it looked at the women who were, uh, who were captaining the boat and just so impressive. We went home and we immediately went to our computers and looked on the Internet. And we, watched, we saw the deck plans of the Junot NC-14 and uh, watched videos of it, you know, steaming off the coast of France and everything was beautiful. I made the mistake of looking at the price tag. <clears throat> when I put my head on the pillow that night, happiness was gone. Not just because I had a boat in my head, but because I had envy in my heart. I was no longer aware of the good in my life. I was only aware of the good in somebody else's life. And I envied their leisure. What's wrong with envy? Jeff Cook writes that envy separates us from who we were made to be and the life we were made to enjoy. Envy is the sin that insists we transform ourselves into something that we're not. And when I am separated from myself, I am truly lost. 
It's kind of an interesting comment. Envy as separation. I think of envy as a kind of a distortion of relationship. And, and this is important because remember, uh, tzedekah, the, the Hebrew word we looked at last week, which meaning, means justice, really is about right relationships with God, with other human beings, with myself, and with the natural order. And so when my relationships get distorted by envy, I am setting myself up to become an agent of injustice. Listen, uh, envy distorts my relationship with others because now I'm in competition with you. Envy distorts my relationship to the natural order because now I'm at risk of over-consuming. Envy distorts my relationship with myself because now I'm condemning myself for not being somebody else. And finally, envy distorts my relationship with God as we see in the psalmist who just shakes his fist at heaven with complaint. And ultimately, look, it devolves. In verse 21, he says, his soul was embittered, pricked in heart wounds himself. But it's just not the self-wound that this psalm is about, because remember, it's a psalm about justice. This is a, a wound that will perpetuate itself and replicate itself in the lives of others, envy. It's envy that turns the Garden of Eden into something less than paradise for Adam and Eve and hence the fall. It's envy that makes Cain raise his hand in violence over the head of his brother Abel. It's envy that makes Laban uh, claim that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I will be avenged seven times seventyfold, and spiral of violence extends out. Envy intrudes between Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Laban, Joseph and his brothers, and it has devastating consequences. The problem with envy is it's believing that there's something wrong with God's love. He hasn't loved me well. It's something wrong with the way that God has loved other people. He's loving them when they don't deserve to be loved. There's, envy ultimately is creating a love for something less than God, the thing that has been denied me. And the problem really is that it puts ourselves in the judgment seat. If you want to see the connection between envy and justice, think about our little ones, our children. One of the first things a parent hears a child say is, that's not fair. Have you ever heard that? That's not fair. Why does Johnny not have to take a nap? And I do. That's not fair. In the context of that comparison, we put ourselves in the seat of judgment. We take God's seat and say, well, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. God, if I were running the universe, here's how I would have distributed the goods. We need to be very careful about this. Karl Barth, against the backdrop of World War II, once wrote, when a man thinks that his eyes are open and therefore that he knows what is good and evil, when a man sets himself on the seat of judgment or even imagines that he can do so, war cannot be prevented but comes irresistibly. And friends, I think this is the danger of our current moment right now. Envious love. Envy is the wounding heart of injustice. Let's move on, secondly, to grateful love. Here, I think, again, Asaph, the psalmist, is trying to impress upon us a second lesson, that gratitude puts the wound in context. Context. Notice there's a a scene shift here. A new context makes a difference in the psalmist's heart. Verse 17, I would have talked on, he says, like a 
preacher is sometimes known to do. But uh, until, he says, verse 17, there's a transition, there's the pivot, until I went into the sanctuary of God. A new context. Now, what is that context? For us, it's, it's, this is the sanctuary, it's a place of worship. For Asaph, it would have been a tent called the tabernacle. Um, but Asaph's successors would have worshipped in that same place where that ceiling, uh, the floor tile sits right now in Jerusalem, and that's uh, the second temple sanctuary. Now, you may ask, how can a change of context change a heart? And I want to answer that question by telling you a story that Brian Stevenson tells. Remember, I have invited us all to read a book together during this winter, this Justice series, called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. thought it would be kind of fun to be like a freshman class and have a common book that we're all reading. It's a page-turner. It'll read quickly, but you need to get started because this is not a long series on justice. So please go get a copy of Just Mercy. In that book, I'm, I'm being very careful not to spoil anything for you, but in that book, there is a story about the power of context. The initial context is the prison. Brian Stevenson is an African-American attorney from Harvard that's dedicated his life to defending death row inmates. And uh, he's visiting his client, Avery, who's a man uh, on death row who's got an intellectual disability and all he wants is a milkshake and Brian Stevens trying to get him free. It's not an easy task. He has to, what makes it particularly hard initially is that he has to get past a correction officer who's a white man, rather large and extremely uh, unkind to Brian. Well, this man has a steely gaze and he would stare at him and he would make him sign books that were not legally necessary to enter. He, he gave him a strip search every time he came through, which is also against the law. But um, Brian just complied. One day, this man puts a finger in Brian's chest and says, do you know that pickup truck out there in the driveway? And Brian said, yeah, I mean, he had noticed it because it's, got, it's covered with Confederate flag and racist stickers all over it. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I've seen that. And the, the correction officer says, I want you to know that's my truck. Uh, a little bit of intimidation. Now, there's a context shift. And the next time Brian Stevens goes back to this prison later on, the correction officer is cheerful and just waves him through. I mean, no strip search, no um, abuse whatsoever. What's the difference? Turns out, Brian finds out that this correction officer had been assigned to transport Avery to the court during some of the hearings. And in the courtroom, that other context, this correction officer heard what the case was about. He heard uh, Brian Stevenson as an advocate speaking for a man, Avery, who was raised in the foster care system, um, unwelcome uh, by his own parents and abused. And now what happened was that the corrections officer himself had been raised in the foster care system and had a horrible time of it. And he realized Brian Stevenson defends people who are just like him. And that little bit of information changed the way he related to Brian. Here's what he says in his own words to Brian as he interprets this. He says, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it's good what you're doing. You know, I got so angry coming up that there were plenty of times when I really wanted to hurt somebody just because I was angry. I came up in foster care too. 
Man, I didn't think anybody had it as bad as me. Do you hear the envy in the background there? They moved me around like I wasn't wanted nowhere. I had it pretty rough. But listening to you, uh, to what you was saying about Avery, made me realize that there were other people who had it as bad as I did, I guess even worse. Now, the corrections officer does not tell Brian Stevenson this fact, but when Brian Stevenson goes into the prison and he sees Avery, Avery doesn't use his usual request, which is, can I have a milkshake? And this puzzles Brian. He says, what's going on? And, I, and he starts to apologize for not bringing the milkshake, which was the prison guard didn't allow that. And uh, he says, I'm sorry, I didn't bring the milkshake. And Avery said, oh, no, I don't need a milkshake anymore. More, I already got one. You already got a milkshake. How? Well, the corrections officer, when he was taking me to the courtroom, drove me by a Wendy's and bought a milkshake for me. So it's just a heart had changed, not only toward Brian, but also towards Avery. How did it happen? It happened because of a shift in context, from the prison now to the courtroom, meeting an advocate. This story is told in a chapter that Stevenson entitles Mitigation. Mitigation, you lawyers know, is to put a, a case in a greater context. A mitigating factor is a bit of evidence that changes the way we see the whole case, helps us interpret it differently. Now, let me tell you, um, I'm trying to experience this in my own life. I uh, was preparing for this message, and I went back and looked at my journal, and I went back to July. And I don't write in my journal very often, so I just had to turn back about four pages. And I saw in, in July, I had made a promise to God that I was going to, quote, do the work of joy in my life. And I said, I'm gonna, I want to be known as Mr. Positive. Call me Mr. Positive from now on. Now, if you know me well, like my family knows me, they would know this is purely aspirational. <laughs> this is not the reality yet, uh, even though this is, you know, January. Um, but what I was saying is, you know, I'm so tired of envy. I'm so tired of its cousin, self-pity. I'm so tired of focusing on what's wrong in myself or in the world around me or the situation or the news and the criticism, the dark spirit that, that kind of clouds my life when I do that. I want to just put my life in a bigger context. I want to be positive. And my theme for this is Philippians chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 8. And here Paul writes, Finally, beloved, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's pleasing, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't dive into your envy and self-pity. Pull yourself up into a bigger context, okay? And this is what is happening for the psalmist when he says, I would have continued talking this way and sulking this way until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Now... He experiences mitigation. He comes before God, who is a mitigating factor that provides a whole new context, new interpretation for his wound. What happens in the sanctuary? Well, just very quickly, three things. First of all, an experience of mercy. Remember, the sanctuary is where a, a, a sacrifice is made for sin. This is the place where God says, I love you so much. I love you even though you're a sinner. Mercy. 
The second thing that happens, there is a, a story. It's in the sanctuary week after week that the Israelites hear as we do our lives in the context of this grand narrative, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And every week, what we bring into here becomes recontextualized in, 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 the, in this grand narrative. And then the third thing is people. Notice what he says in verse 15. I would have been untrue had I continued speaking this way to the circle of your children. And I cannot resist as we approach this season of being in small groups together to, to wonder what the circle of your children might mean to him, if not something very much like a small group. When you walk into the sanctuary, there's, it's a great place to be, but there's very little intimacy. It's hard to know and be known by this many people. But a circle of people, six, seven, eight, nine people who commit to knowing you and being known by you, this is a group of people as you gather together, can take your hurts and joys and help you contextualize them in the mercy of a great God. That's why I want you to be in a small group this Lent, even if it's for the first time. It's a grateful love, shifts our attention. Gratitude puts the wound in a greater context. Finally, let me talk about a gospel love. Gospel love is a love that's a reaction to the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And here, I think this psalmist has a third lesson, and that's that we love because God first loves us. Notice that there's a pursuit here. There's the pursuit of a loving God who will not give up on his people. Verses 23 and 24, the climax of this passage, there's this repetition of, oh my gosh, you're with me. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me with honor. This trifold rhythm of grasping, God grasping us, of guiding us, and of glorifying us. One scholar said, is a reminder and an echo of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 when he says, those whom you call, you justify. Those whom you justify, you glorify. Oh, the love of God in Jesus Christ. What shall separate us? God is pursuing you with his merciful love, and no matter where you wander or how you tire on the journey, he will not let you go. You cannot outpace his grace. And notice the envy now is gone. Just gratitude. Gospel-inspired gratitude. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Not looking at anybody else. Not looking for anything else. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on the earth that I desire other than you. Wow. A Fox News reporter did an interview with Pastor Tim Keller not long ago. She asked him a question, who are the poor? She said, after all, if you're poor in America, you're still richer than most people in developing countries around the world. And after all, I, as a Fox reporter, uh, feel poor compared to Donald Trump. So who are the poor? And thank you for a second, Tim Keller gave his first answer, which was just kind of standard. He said, well, in America, a family of four earning $24,000 or less, we consider them poor. But then he said something wiser than that. He said, you know, in the Bible, uh, poverty is not really considered in financial terms so much as in terms of power. So we really shouldn't think about a, a, a poverty line so much as a poverty scale. And our task is to try not to look up the scale in envy, but to look 
down the scale in mercy. And I think that's right. And I think that's where justice comes from. And I think Jesus is the only one who can free us. After all, Jesus lives at the top of the scale and emptied himself, humbled himself to give us mercy. If he did that, we can look up not with envy and look down into his mercy and share it with others. No one will ever love God like Jesus did, but Jesus became human being. God became human being to lo- as humanity so that humanity in Jesus would love God perfectly. And in that way, God has firmly grasped us and loved us well. Let me close finally by noting that Jesus referred to himself in legal terms as an advocate. He called himself an advocate. In this way, you might picture yourself in prison along with Avery because Jesus, like Brian Stevenson, has pushed past the guard and has come in with his good news of the gospel to unlock your heart. And when you experience his love for you on a daily basis, Jesus will release you from envy and bitterness and pride, and he will release you for expressions of mercy. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple as a boy. He crawled around those very tiles that I just showed you in that picture. He cleansed the temple when it was encumbered by injustice. He had whips. He was very serious about that. But most of all, the most poignant moment is that moment when they dressed him up like a king. They put a robe on his shoulders and they put a crown of thorns into his head and they mocked him and they spat at him and they they whipped him. And he allowed it to happen in love. The greatest act of injustice ever conceived by a human mind, that a human being would try to kill God, was a free gift of mercy given for us so that he could stand at your side and be your advocate before God. This is the way that he brings justice, not just to our hearts, but to the world. So friends, what's your verdict? We all have to make our own decisions about Jesus. For myself, I will take the words of Psalm 73 and say, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would break open our hard hearts with the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have reconciled the world to yourself in no one or nothing but your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that right now he stands in the heavenly throne, heavenly temple, as our advocate, making his case on the basis of his righteousness and mercy alone on our behalf. We thank you for that. And we pray that we might be advocates for those who have less than we do in the world and show to them your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.